Hey everybody, Michael Cohen here, and I'd like to welcome you back to another episode of Cohen's Corner. Thank you very much for tuning in to today's show. As always, you can find episodes of this podcast available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. If you happen to be listening on an Apple device, we encourage you to leave a star rating, preferably five stars if you like the show, and maybe a comment if you have some thoughts on what we've done so far, and maybe what you might like to hear down the road. I check out all of the comments, and I see all of the feedback, and I appreciate everyone that has reached out so far. Hopefully I can hear from some more of you in the next few weeks as well. A while back I mentioned that I was going to try and branch out a little bit from the NFL and try some different sports, some different characters, and things that I think you guys might find interesting, and today certainly qualifies as branching out. Our guest today is former heavyweight fighter and title contender Lou Savarese, who fought professionally from 1989 to 2007. He retired with a record of 46 wins and 7 losses, with 38 of those wins coming by way of knockout. Prior to turning pro, he was a two-time New York State Golden Gloves champion and also competed in the 1988 Olympic trials, ultimately losing out to a man named Riddick Bowe, who went on to win the silver medal, losing in the gold medal fight to Lennox Lewis, a future heavyweight champion of the world, and Riddick Bowe as well went on to have a championship career. Savarese was a top contender in the heavyweight division at a time when it was absolutely stacked with talent and names that just about anybody would know whether you're a boxing fan or not. And Savarese fought all of them. He fought Evander Holyfield. He fought Mike Tyson. He fought George Foreman. And he fought Buster Douglas. Douglas he knocked out in the first round, arguably the biggest win of his career because Douglas had become famous for being the first man to defeat and knock out Mike Tyson. He fought George Foreman to a split decision loss, which means that one of the judges believed Savarese had won the fight while the other two gave it to Foreman, and so he was in the ring with some of the biggest names and baddest names in the heavyweight division at that time. He also won a couple of heavyweight titles. He won the International Boxing Association's heavyweight title when he defeated Douglas, and he also won a World Boxing Organization Intercontinental heavyweight title when he defeated Tim Witherspoon in 2002. That alone qualifies Lou Savarese to be a very interesting guest. You know, those types of experiences are some that the majority of people will never ever have, and it leads to some very fascinating life experiences. But Lou Severis also had a small acting career, which was interesting in its own right. He had a cameo appearance on an episode of The Sopranos in season 5 in 2004. He had a cameo appearance on the soap opera Guiding Light. He was in a movie with Joaquin Phoenix and Mark Wahlberg called We Own the Night, and he was a leading character in ESPN's production of Cinderella Man, the James J. Braddock story. He's also been in a horror film, and he was on an episode of The Jury, a television show produced and distributed by Fox. So you add all of those things together, and this guy has had a fascinating life ever since he was a kid growing up outside New York City. And so while this is certainly outside the confines of the basketball-football world that I've kind of cultivated on this podcast, I tried to follow along with the mantra that I believe in for my written journalism stories, which is that people make stories. And if you find an interesting person, you're going to find an interesting story. And Savarese certainly qualifies. He's a guy that I've known for a couple of years now because he helped me with a story about a former Green Bay Packer executive, Alonzo Highsmith, who went into boxing after his playing career ended in the National Football League as a running back. And so Savarese and Highsmith 
were training together in the same gym in Houston, Texas, and that's how they got to know each other and how I got to know Severis. So again, hopefully you guys enjoy this episode. I know it's a little bit different, but variety is good. Embrace it. Listen. It's not as long as our other episodes, but I think you'll really like it. So without further ado, here is a conversation with former heavyweight boxer Lou Severis. Well, Lou, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. I know you guys are busy down there training and, and working at your gym in Houston, so I appreciate you carving out a little bit of time. And, uh, you know, the first question I got to ask you when I was doing some research this morning, I noticed that we're just a couple weeks past the 20th anniversary of your fight with Mike Tyson, which, I, I don't know, does it feel like 20 years have passed? It seems like that flew by. Time flies. I can and I always relate that fight to having my son, my first son, so... It's bizarre, really, really quick, you know. <laughs> and uh, I don't like bringing that fight up too much. Right? There's some fights I won too, so I don't know. I was just saying. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Um, so you know, when you are when you're in the gym now training guys, is that something that yeah. sort of brings back a lot of the memories from from your fighting career? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you try and use that as a, uh, you know, try and emulate some of the guys you fought, some of the things that worked for them or worked for you. So it, it's very helpful. You know, I, I can, I'm a big fight historian. I, I use it. It seems like the guys like it. I use a lot of uh, actual fight uh, circumstances that happen in fights all the way back to like the 30s. I, I always, uh, with the left hook, I always show guys the punch when uh, uh, Carmen Basilio knocked out Graziano was really cool. And I, I always show that punch. And, so I go back. I, I like watching the old fights too. Yeah, I noticed uh, in in again doing some research that a lot of the articles about you and your career reference the fact that you're so much into the history of boxing. And you know, is that something that you know stemmed from childhood, the way a lot of kids get into baseball cards or things like that? Yeah, my dad was really my uh, my uncle was a pro fighter. My uncle Jim was a pro fighter, and then my dad they were really into boxing and uh, you know watching it and everything growing up as an Italian and. In uh, the city in the you know 40s and the 50s and the 60s, you're either a boxer or a bricklayer, you're the one, so, <laughs> or a mobster. But anyway, they uh, they were really around. I, I was around boxing. My uncle used to train guys, so I was always around them pretty much my my whole life growing up. And my dad used to have his box in the garage, and he did it just so we could you know handle ourselves if we had a street fight or something like that. Yeah, but in terms of actually fighting, your dad was against it at first. Is that right? Yeah, he didn't want me to fight. I mean, most most guys, you know, you always want something a little bit better for your kids. And he, uh, you know, he didn't want me to fight. He just wanted me to be educated and use my brain. But that didn't work out that well. So <laughs> boxing was a little bit easier for me. <laughs> what was it about, you know, the, the training or, or the competition or, or any of that that sort of uh, you fell in love with as a teenager when you started training after high school? I just I had a good work ethic when it came to um, – any kind of athletics, I was always the one that I'd always trained the hardest. So it was the first one I practiced, the last one I leave. It was just my thing. Maybe it was fear or whatever. But I just like, you know, I like training and and boxing. I really thought it was just you know that easy. But I, I always tell guys to see, you know, I I could work out you know four hours a day and get paid you know re, you know eventually a lot of money. I, I'd be crazy not to do it, you know. And I'd always you know that was one of the big knocks. I mean, most of my trainers would say I was training too much, you know, and I needed to cut back a little bit. So, but I, I enjoyed the training part of it. I was wondering if growing up, you know, relatively close to the Catskills and given the boxing history in that part of New York, did that influence your your interest in the sport at all? Well, later on, it it it, it didn't at first. I mean, it was my my uh, my uncle and 
they, my uncle was a pro fighter, but they used to train actually where I grew up in Greenwood Lake. Uh, there was a lot of training camps up there and, uh, in, uh, Pompton Lakes. And, uh, but when I, you know, to fast forward, when I, when I was having my big fights, I would train in the Catskills at a place called Cutcher's. It was one of the last Jewish resorts up there. So it was really cool. They would give me, uh, they would, I would train for free. I, and uh, they would have people come and watch the sparring sessions and stuff. It was really cool. It was one of the greatest experiences of my career. It was really, met a lot of nice people. It was, it was really cool. We would do our camp up there six weeks. Yeah, and, and that was an area where Muhammad Ali trained at times, Rocky Marciano trained at times, yeah, Tyson. Yeah, all the way back to Joe Lewis, Joe Lewis too. It yeah. Really cool. What was it about that region that, that made fighting such a, a hotbed? <laughs> well, at the time, it was close to, you know, the, the Mecca with New York City, so guys would want to get out of the city and, you know, where there wasn't so many distractions and train. And, you know, it's really beautiful. There's nothing to do with a lot of hills. And it's really, really pretty. You know, uh, when you talk to some guys that, that get into fighting, whether it's boxing or mixed martial arts or whatever, some of them say, well, I, I never really had the intention of fighting. I just wanted to train. I just wanted to see what it was like. Did you know you wanted to actually fight? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would. That's the big thing when, you, you know, some guys, you know, it seems good until you get hit in the head or whatever. Then I actually liked it, so I wanted to do more. So it's uh, that really, you know, I remember I got knocked down once and, uh, and I was sparring in Yonkers PAL a hundred years ago. The guy knocked me down. He actually went on to be a pro, Ike Padilla. And I remember being down, the first thing I wanted to do when I got up was I wanted to come back and avenge myself, you know. So that's really the difference. Some guys get knocked down. They're like, you know what, this isn't, this isn't for me. But I wasn't that smart. I just said, okay, I want to come back and try and beat the guy. So <laughs> that's a big part of it. Did you um, – now I know obviously you turned pro in 89, but had you racked up a, a decent number of amateur events prior to that? Yeah, I did. I, I won the uh, – I won – I'm sorry. I won the New York Golden – I'm going to be in some more choir, but I won the New York Golden Gloves in uh, – 85 and 86 in New York City, and then I won the uh, I won the Houston Sports Festival in 86. I won the Empire State Games in 86 too. So I had a lot of good amateur accolades. I lived in the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs on North for two years, and then I went, I lost in the uh, the uh, second round of the Olympic trials to Riddick Bow to go to the Olympics. So. What was it like uh, in terms of the schedule of an amateur fighter? You know, when you got to the, the point where you had your big fights, you weren't fighting more than, you know, a couple of times a year. But I remember hearing amateurs yeah. where they'd fight every three weeks, you know? Yeah, I actually fought two times in one night in the National Golden Globe. So Jeez. that was, uh, yeah, but now it's dissipated a lot. But no, yeah, it's crazy. But uh, yeah, it's just not different. There's a lot more downtime and you have to, curtail your training so i would do a lot of uh weight training and alternative stuff like that a lot of guys didn't do plyometrics and things of such so how were you uh how are you feeling going into those olympic trials in 88 yeah i felt good i mean i was the thing is i had probably maybe 30 fights but some of the guys are like Bo was so much better than me then i mean i shouldn't even have been in the ring with him he was you know he's so good he, was, he should have been to me one of the greatest heavyweights ever but he was such a good amateur. People don't realize that he won. I think he won the JOs at 147. He had a lot of amateur fights, you know. Bo was, uh, but he was uh, much better than me. I beat Kevin Ford the first night, and uh, then I wound up fighting uh, Bo uh, in the uh, semifinals. So I lost to Bo, and that was it. <laughs> and he went on to fight, and then he lost to Lewis Lewis that year, right? Yeah, he, he won. Lo he lost, right? Yeah, he, he won. The, he won the silver medal in Seoul, and Lennox right, Lewis won the, won the gold. Yeah. 
And yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, could you tell even from from '88 that this guy was was legit? Who Bo? Yeah. Oh God, everybody. I knew him before that because we used to spar all the time. But he was, he should have been. I mean, I think most heavyweights would agree. If not the best heavyweight, one of the top five. He's just you know. He, He's a good guy and everything. He's just uh, mentally, he was not, you know, not the toughest when it came to. You know, he's funny. I mean, he's a big kid and everything, but he uh, he could really fight. Uh, he could do everything. He fight inside, outside, and he could punch too. You know. So, so <laughs> by the time you turned pro in in '89, what were you comfortable with and confident with in your arsenal going into pro fights? Uh, I mean, I just what do you call it? I just I, I know, you know, I was willing to train. I was always training as hard, if not harder than anybody, but. So that was easy, and then you know, I had a good right hand. I had a decent chin, so I, I had you know I had tested everything that you need to be a fighter. So, um, and then a big part of my career was when I came up which fighter was it? Yeah, must have been Buster Mattis, and I was doing so well in the gym, but I wouldn't do as good in the fights. And something just popped in my head and said, "Listen, if you can't, if you can do it, in the, if you can do it at all, and you, you know you're doing it in the gym and you're not doing it in the fight, it's something mental." So. I got really big into affirmations, and that really helped my career a ton. Really? And so was so really how, yeah. how did that influence you? Like, what were you trying to do differently? It was just a way of just affirming myself. Well, what, the biggest thing was relaxing in there, you know. That's when, you know, you see a lot more when you relax. You see a lot more, you know, you have to be able to pick spots or whatever. And so for me, it was just being able to do what I can do in the gym because I'm relaxed. And when I was getting there, I was kind of hyped up, but... I was able to relax through these affirmations and affirm the stuff that I was doing, you know, wanting to do. I would do it during the day in my mind. I do it 10 times a day and it just helped you a lot. You'd be surprised. Were you the type of guy that would get nervous or anxious during the week of a fight? No, nah, I was, you know, it's funny because with the affirmations and I, 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 it didn't get me too bad. You know, I'd sleep before the fights and, uh, it was, it was pretty good. I wasn't, uh, I mean, that's normal as fight or fight syndrome, but some physiological, but I was, I was pretty good. I mean, I, I know fighters that wouldn't sleep for three days before the fight, you know. But that wasn't my thing. You know, I think other than, than New York City, you could argue that Houston at the time was, was sort of the biggest epicenter of, of boxing in terms of, you know, specifically 100%. heavyweights. Um, you know, can, can you give an idea yeah, of what yeah. the landscape was like in Houston at the time? Sure. Yeah, you had, well, you had Duva had his camp down here. So you had Tyrell Biggs, you had Amanda Holyfield. Then Foreman was coming doing his comeback. So he had a lot of guys down here sparring with him. It was uh, by far the best heavyweight town uh, out there, you know. And I'm just telling you, the, fringe, the, the main guys, there was a lot of fringe guys too, Eddie Gonzalez, uh, Al Evans, there was a lot of guys down here, so it was cool. You know, there was a quote from you at one point in your career where you said that, you know, most of the guys that you fought ended up being very nice guys. You developed, you know, decent yeah. rapports with them or you were friends with them. So when you have guys like Foreman and Holyfield and you that are competing against each other in some respects and you're all in the same city, was it pretty cordial, though, when you guys were training and things like that? that, that yeah, very cordial. Well, when we were training, it was different. I mean, we, we were friends. Holyfield and I are still friends. And Foreman, I saw that too long ago. We, you know, get uh, hugging it up and everything. So, but you know, when you were sparring, it was a little bit different. And fighting is obviously way different. You know, when I fought Holyfield, uh, you know, we were friends, but you know, that's all out the window when you're fighting. You know? Yeah, I can imagine that. You know, as as soon as you're in a setting where you have to punch the guy, you just realize that you got to do yeah, it unless yeah. your own lights are going to go out. You know? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And I, I hit Holyfield so hard, and he didn't go down. It's a bad feeling. 
And then he came back and dropped me, I think, the eighth round or something like that. It was a good fight, but he could, he could take a punch. What um you know what was a, a typical week of training like for you when you were sort of at the at the peak of your career were you doing like two three sessions a day and all that kind of stuff? No, you can't. You know sometimes uh, three three is too much. It's just going to be up. But I would uh, I, I had kind of a, a whole routine. But I would do. I was a big advocate of running. Uh, I would run. I ran a lot more than most heavy weeks. Uh, and then I would do plyos, plyometrics once a week, and then I would do uh, weights too. I did weight training, you know, light weights, but I would do a lot of uh, weight training too. So, and then once six weeks out, then I really just you know focused on the boxing aspect of it. When when you have when you have that yeah, I was going to say when you have that six weeks and you're getting ready and you're sparring and everything. I mean, there had to be situations throughout your career where you went into a fight and because the sparring is so intense, were you, would you ever go into fights with injuries and things like that? You know, it's a, that's a big part of the trainer, having the right trainer, because uh, that's a, a trainer wants to see you have, like, a couple of good days of sparring, and then he wants to see you peak out, and then when you start going down from there, that's when you want to pull back. So peaking is a big, really, really big part of training, so my, I leave that up to the trainers, you know. You know, I had an opportunity, you know, a few years ago to spend some time in Floyd Mayweather's gym out in Las Vegas, and he was sparring at the time, getting ready, I believe, for one of his fights against Marcos Maidana, and, you know, he's famous for these marathon sparring sessions where he'll do like yeah, 10 or 15-minute rounds. What was sparring like for you? No, I know. He, he a lot of, uh, I used to, I was friends with uh, Roger, unfortunately, he passed, but Roger would tell me that he was just, you know, that Floyd would just, he trained all night if you let him, he would just, you know, keep doing it. But that worked for him. But uh, sparring, I mean, you know, I, I like to spar too. I mean, that's, uh, but as I got older, you realize that, you know, you can't really learn as much as you would when you started. So sparring could be detrimental for you too. So I would, you know, try and curtail my sparring that, you know, so much hard sparring. You bring a guy to camp that wasn't the toughest, but he might be quick. So you just pick up some speed and not, you know, knock it in and, you know, get, you don't want to be going in that fight feeling bad, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see a scenario where if you're if you're sparring all out, you know, week after week for those six weeks, you're going to be drained no, you naturally. Can, you can. Uh, no, you have to have some lighter sparring. That's why they bring guys in that are big punchers that are a little bit quicker. You can pick up some speed and stuff. It's good. You know, as you started to build your professional record, you get to 5-0, and 10-0, and 15, 20. What does it feel like to just win fight after fight after fight for essentially, you know, the first six years of your career? Um, feels good, <laughs> you know. And for me, it was hard because I wanted to. I really wanted to up the. You know, I wanted to go harder. But my my manager was so smart. You know, I didn't have that many amateur fights, but I moved quickly in the amateurs. But so he wanted to make sure I had enough seasoning and everything. So he was great. Bob Strangle was my manager. He was amazing. You know, he cared about you. Know, if anything, he cared about you to a fault. You know. Yeah, I remember, you know, when, when you talked to me for a story about one of your, uh, one of the guys that trained in the gym with you, Alonzo Highsmith, a former football player, yeah, he did yeah. the same thing with Alonzo in terms of carefully picking opponents and things like that, yeah. making sure that he wasn't exposed yeah. too quickly. Um, you know, what, what is the relationship like between a, a manager and, and a fighter? Well, Bob and I, it's like family. I mean, he, you know, just a, if anything, if there's a fault, if you use the word fault, it was he wanted to move your, you know, he didn't want to get you hurt. He really cared about you. That, that's a, We're still great friends to, to this day. I spoke to him this morning, you know, so. 
Yeah, and, and as as you start Which to, is rare in boxing, though. <laughs> that's true. Too much. That's true. There is the the relationships in boxing can certainly become a little uh, fragmented as time goes on. Yeah, um, a litigious, it's a very litigious business. <laughs> as you started to to get up, you know, north of twenty and o, twenty five, thirty and o, um, and you start to get bigger and bigger fights. Um, you know, what was it like for you being a New York native to get the opportunity to fight in Madison Square Garden for the first time in that, 96? That, that's, that's your, yeah, that's your epicenter. I mean, for a New York fighter, especially a guy, I'm such a New York historian and a boxing, that's the epicenter. I mean, that, that's the best place to fight for me, you know, it's just uh, a real boxing uh, savvy crowd. It was, it was so cool, you know, and even fighting the gloves, I fought, when I won the gloves, the the two times they fought, they fought in the big room. The, the two finals it was so cool. What does it, um, what does it feel like when you walk into the building? Does it just have a different aura to it? It does for me. It does. I mean, I just it kind of goes back to old times for me. You know, I just love. Uh, yeah, I was really, really in New York. One day, the New York boxing story. I used to listen to my dad tell stories about some real, you know, random, um, obscure guys. It was cool though. Did you and your dad ever go watch fights when you were a kid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We went to a lot of fights. We saw Tyson up in um, the Granite, up in, up in Country. We saw him a couple of times fight on smaller cards here. That's pretty neat. That's pretty neat. So, and we always go to the Golden Gloves, too. Yeah, the Golden Gloves is... I, I think that's something, you know, and, and you'd know better than me, but I feel like the um, the allure and, and sort of the luster of the Golden Gloves has worn off recently, but but back uh, in the day, it was, yeah. it was it was, it was was a big deal. Yeah, people have no idea. It's crazy. I mean, it would be so busy and it would be so much fun. I mean, literally, they'd sell out the big room for the, uh, the Golden Gloves, you know, it was just so... Uh, now it's got... It's really worn it down, you know, unfortunately. And, you know, for more than one reason, you know, uh, there's... I was telling people when I started boxing, there were so many gyms I could go to for free. You know, you don't see PALs around anymore and stuff like that. You know, it's um, you know, and it's because of money. I mean, guys, it's not a great business to try and get poverty-stricken kids in there to pay pay them monthly dues. You know, it doesn't work very well. Yeah, yeah, I can. You know, that's something that you know when when you have an opportunity to to go into this, you know, some of the kids do come certainly from backgrounds that are not as privileged, and that's you know the money is most of them. I mean, most of the kids, you know, I mean, especially in the U.S. and most of them are kids that are you know aren't from the best areas. Absolutely, um, you know, I'm curious as as you started to to get that opportunity, you fought George Foreman in '97. Um, you know, that was that was kind of a, a massive opportunity for you. How does a fight like that come together? Did you know that that was possible? And are you and your manager kind of looking yeah, at big well, names? I, I did because my manager actually had that. I could have got that fight earlier. People called me up and said, and my manager, his his. Uh, to his attachment, he said, "No, I'm not, you're not taking the fight." And I was furious. I said, "You know what's going? You know we're gonna, how can we lose this fight? It's going to be two hundred thousand dollars. I'm crazy." And he said, "Just wait. It's going to come back around." He was surely right. It did come back around, but I wasn't getting five hundred thousand. I was ready, ready for the fight. You know. So when you have the opportunity to face a guy like Foreman, who you know has been a champion, has been you know sort of a legend of, of his yeah. era, um, how did you prepare for a guy like that? Well, I had been in camp with him many times before that, probably four times. So I knew what I was up against, you know. Um, so it was good. I got I had a great training camp for that. I think I was in camp seven weeks in uh, upstate New York called Cutchers. And we had a, had a good spar in this guy, um, a big guy named, uh, oh, what was his name? God, big, uh, James Gaines, James Gaines. He was a real, like, uh, big, huge guy. But he was perfect sparring. He was not a big puncher, but he could. 
take a punch. He was good. We had uh, another guy, Ray Ennis. We had, we had a really good spot, guys, that emulated Foreman there. You know, to to have an opportunity to make five hundred thousand dollars in in one night for a fight after you know some of the early fights in your career, I'm sure paid very small amounts when you turned pro. Um, oh yeah, well, a, most of them you pay you pay your way to get on the card. <laughs> really? Right. Is that true? Yeah, 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 oh, yeah. A lot of yeah, a lot of the fights you pay. It's going. It happens now. I mean, to move a guy properly, it's hard to you know it's hard to get him fight. So you just you know you'll, you'll buy the opponent. It's not you know it's not. It's not a fix or anything, but you have to pay both sides of the, of the card. You know that's why it's so expensive to get guys, you know, into a position where they can make money. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Um, you know, oh, yeah. how far oh, into your career? Your... How far into your career was it before you you started to make good money fighting? Uh, by my first fight, that I made anything I, I could, you know, survive off of was uh, Buster Mathis. Okay. Um, yeah. and then to have, you know, to, again, the foreman fight, you know, to make half a million dollars and things that's life-changing kind of money, you know, for, for a young guy. Um, yeah, did, it, did it, did it feel like you just launched into kind of a different stratosphere at that point? Yeah, it did because, you know, that's everybody has that fight. Even though I lost, it still was almost a way of winning because I, I did much better than people thought I would do. So it worked out pretty good. Yeah, I was looking at the numbers. First of all, it was a split decision, and you won one of the cards, one fourteen, one thirteen. Um, you know, not only that, but in terms of punches, you landed about forty-five more punches than he did, and you threw you threw an astronomical amount, eight seventy. I can't even imagine the cardio you'd need to throw eight hundred and seventy punches. But you know, from a you know, again, it was a fight that you didn't win. But did you feel like that was one of the better performances of your career? Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, it was one of the fights that you know, it was just. It, that's the one. If you put, and you, you said it exactly, it puts you in a different stratosphere because everybody, I forget how many sports writers pick me to lose and get knocked out, you know. So, by you know, some people thought I won the fight, some people thought I lost, but doing as well as I did, and not you know, not getting knocked out, but you know, it was a close fight. So it was good. It was a win in in some ways because people didn't think I'd do anywhere near that, you know. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you was you had the opportunity to to be the main event for a number of different cards at different resorts and different casinos and yeah. some overseas and things. What is the treatment like for the guys in the main event when you're the big show in the week leading up to a fight? You know, it's interesting you say that. Some like when I fought Foreman, it was you know I was I was there to lose you know so they put me in like a not a great room and I think it was right but they didn't and uh, it actually got me angry which is good I, I do well when I was angry but they didn't treat me very well but uh, some of the fights you know Arab always treated me real good when they fought Douglas he you know treated you well so it's it just you know each board is different you know but if you're the A side or B side it'd be different too. You know? That's true. That's true. Um, you know, so when, when was like the, I guess, was the Buster Douglas fight one where, where you could argue that you were the, the, the A side of that? No, not really. Everybody, I mean, most guys that I would lose on paper it looked terrible for me because he was so fast. He had a good jab. I cut and he was, you know, he had a good jab. So on paper it looked bad for me, but, uh, uh, you know, we wound up, we wound up winning that fight. So, you know, I guess Whit Whitaker, that was a tough fight, but you know, I would probably be the A side for Whitaker and uh, uh, the Mount Whitaker. 
Yeah, the um, I, I watched a, a clip of the Buster Douglas fight this morning, and you know I, I thought your reaction to it was really interesting. I wanted to ask you about it. So you knock him down three times in that first round, and you win the fight. And as soon as the ref calls it, you throw both arms in the air, and you're running around, and it's almost like you didn't know who to hug or who to talk to. And then yeah. and then some no, guys come into the ring. My dad, yeah, yeah. My my friend told me my mom came in, but no, my dad. I was just thinking about my dad. That's it. He, he was uh, he was a big part of my career passed away right before my pro debut so that's what i was thinking of yeah and then you drop down to a knee and you're, you're kissing the canvas and everything and yeah you know, i was thinking about my dad yeah what was um you know aside from from the emotional element just from an accomplishment standpoint what did it mean to you to knock out a guy who you know knocked well, out you know, tyson yeah it resurrected my career because you know people are writing me off and by winning that fight it puts you back in the mix and it, it, you know in a weird uh a weird turn of events. We 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 actually train. It's very rare. We train exactly. We watch tapes. Me and this uh, one of my strength coaches, uh, Tim Hallmark, who was got famous for uh, Holyfield putting weight on Holyfield. But we were watching tapes and we just couldn't figure out why guys didn't. Uh, they didn't. You know uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They did not. Um, oh God. Anyway, they didn't take advantage of when he dropped his hand. He would jab, bring his hand back low. You know, and it could be he was getting a little bit older, but. We we trained the whole fight for that and it worked. I mean, he brought the, the right hand back. And I, I just caught him with a right hand, a big right hand. That I wound up winning the fight, so it's very rare that that happens. That you, you know, put all your eggs in one basket and it turns out to be good. Yeah, you caught him with the right hand, and and you know you mentioned uh, the Holyfield fight later as being one where you hit a guy as hard as you could. So it was the right hand, the power punch that would put guys out for you. Yeah, and I hit Holyfield and he wobbled. And I made probably the worst business decision of my life. I, I thought, I said, listen, I was in camp out there. And I said, he's going to get tired. And he's so dangerous when he's hurt. He didn't get tired. He came back and dropped me, I think, two rounds later. So with a wicked left hook. What does um what does it feel like? I mean, I know you guys do this for a living, but is it does it ever feel uncomfortable to knock a guy out? No. No, do not. No, it's not for me anyway. I don't know. You know. I can't speak for everybody, but sure. it did not. I mean, that was my goal. And I, I used to. You know, I, t- I would take it. I was a big believer that when, you know, things are fearful when it's unknown. So I would take, you know, I was willing to die in there. I mean, if I died, that was going to be uh, an offshoot. But I, I wanted to, I wouldn't quit. I wanted to win, you know. And uh, I was ready. I was li- literally ready to die. And I, you know, I mean, I cause I care, but I didn't. I, I was, you know, putting my life on the line when I went in there. Yeah, you know, for a guy who, you know, dished out as much punishment as you did and absorbed punishment and everything, uh, did you did you ever think about, you know, any of the any of the potential ramifications down the line or was it too early to think about those no, kinds of things? No, no, I didn't. I, I didn't. I mean, CT and stuff like that. I never, I never thought about that. I still, you know, uh, I'm really versed on it, but, I'm, I'm, you know, I still, uh, you know, I, I still, you know, uh, I'm still think that you know if you, you live your life right and you know, do the best you can do that's all you can do you can't you know but you know i'm not i'm not naive to it by any means i wouldn't listen i wouldn't let my kids fight you know because of that it is you're definitely going to get you know hit in the head my old trainer used to say you go out in the rain your ass going to get wet and you know it was a crude way of saying that that's you're going to get hit you know so that's part of the game yeah, it's it's definitely one of those things where you know what you're you're signing up for. Um, you know, sure. I, I'm curious of the guys that you fought. You know, whether it's amateur, pro, whatever. Who, who was the guy that that you would say hit you the hardest? 
Bo, either Bo, you know, Tyson just nicked me, but he, he gets so hard. I didn't get shit that many punches with him, but probably Bo, Bo, Bo could really punch. I mean, I followed him a lot. He, uh, he beat me in the Olympic trials, but Holyfield hit me a wicked left hook. I got, I got right back up. I don't know how I did that, but I, I did get up. You know? And on the flip side of that, the the fight where you dished out, you know, the the hardest punch was that the Holyfield fight for you? Yeah, I had him running the button. I mean, he wobbled and. And I, I thought, you know, I thought he was going to come right back. But he, 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 after the fight, he told me he was hurt. I was like, oh, geez. So that's why I said it was a bad decision. I should, I should have went after him, you know. I know that it certainly differs based on the outcome of a fight, whether, you know, you win or lose, how much punishment you take, whatever. But what did it feel like if you fight on a Saturday night? How did you feel on a Sunday morning? You know, it depends. Like, like Foreman, I was so sore. Holyfield, I was so sore. You know, depending on the fight, you know, Douglas, I wasn't sure, you know, but, uh, it, you know, it, it all depends on what, you know, how to fight with. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about that, too. To to have a seven-week camp or a six-week camp where you're putting in as much effort as you possibly can and, and win or lose if the fight only goes one round, is that an odd feeling? Yeah. No, not really. It's a good feeling. <laughs> People always ask that. No, it's a, it's a good feeling. That's so bad for the fans, but the quicker you can get it over with, the better, you know. Uh, how did it feel to fight internationally, which you had the chance to do in Scotland uh, for that Tyson bout? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot of schlepping. Uh, it's just a lot of, you know, uh, getting over there is kind of an event and everything. But, but you know, it's not my favorite thing. It, the Tyson thing, I just have kind of a bad taste in my mouth for a couple of reasons. But one is that I, I just, he got arrested and I was supposed to, the fight was supposed to be earlier. I wound up having my son. I, I can't remember how much before, but yeah. my son, my, my first son was born. So it was kind of hard, you know, trying to be a good dad and train for the fight. But, uh, you know, he's, he's tough. He's a tough guy. Yeah, that was uh, there was uh, some other things in that situation, too, that, that weren't advantageous for you. I, I thought, personally, yeah. it was a bit of an early stoppage by the referee, and I know you've yeah, expressed yeah, you know, that as well. Tyson's such a, a good finisher, but they did. I, I we thought they stopped the fight because he hit the referee. It was the one where the referee got in the middle. So I didn't know. We we, we still joke about it. We didn't know he stopped the fight. You know that he stopped the fight. That I, I didn't really stop, we didn't think they were stopping the fight. We thought they were just gonna you know make both of us go to neutral corner or whatever. Yeah, it was it was almost odd because the ref steps in and and sort of waves his hands, but then Tyson jumps around him and starts swinging again. It was it was it was yeah. bizarre. Like it seems like every fight Tyson is in is bizarre, and and this was just yeah, you know that one that element of it. Um, you know, in, in terms of that opportunity, how, how did that come about? Getting the chance to fight Tyson. Uh, they were looking for an opponent, and my manager got my you know got my. Uh, my hat in the field, so he had called. I believe it was Frank Warren at the time. So uh, they liked the fight and everything. So it just kind of came about that way. When when you think back about you know some of the biggest fights that you had, um, I remember talking to again one of your training partners or guys in the gym with you, Alonzo Highsmith, and he said one of the coolest things yeah. about boxing was that at these big events you get to meet people you'd never meet otherwise, yeah. and you get to see things that you'd never see otherwise and travel places. What were some of your favorite memories just, to, you know, that boxing allowed you to do outside of what happened in the ring? Uh, I was so cool. After the Foreman fight, I was a rock star. All kidding aside, but it was fun. I went to, uh, there's a place called Fashion Cafe in Times Square and I got to walk the runway. It, it was cool. It was just stuff I would have never done before. It was fun. And, uh, I mean, it was, when I fought Tyson over in Scotland, it was cool. I flew over with, uh, Barry McGuigan on a flight. I hung out with Frank Bruno. It was cool. It was fun times, man. 
what is it like to have that attention on you as sort of like you said you know you were kind of a rock star after the the foreman fight what is that like for a guy you know i was very well grounded because of my family I, you know they wouldn't let me think i was too cool they would beat me down but you know, in, in a good way but uh you know listen i can see how it could get really far out there but um i wasn't really that into it you know it just uh I, you know, I had the same uh, the same posse since I was a kid. You know, so it was my brother, my cousin Guido, my friends, and that, that was it. You know. Yeah, you got to make sure the guys around you are uh, are looking yeah, out for the yeah. best interests, especially when you start, you know, making the kind of money that that boxers of big events make. That's when things can can go sideways a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah. I used to say all the guys with Tyson. They were like remorers. They were just you know, sucking on and see what they could get, you know. Yeah, and you know the interesting thing about Tyson, you know, related to to me, a very small connection is that he yeah. bought this ridiculously large mansion like 15 minutes from the house that I grew in up Connecticut, in, in Connecticut. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then it went on to be owned by 50 Cent and the rapper and things like that. But it was it was always this strange thing that this guy who you know was one of the most yeah. famous athletes in America bought this house in the middle of the woods in Connecticut. It was always it was always very and, and, uh, am I right? He got he got foreclosed on. Then Fifty Cent bought, it, and then Fifty Cent got foreclosed on too. I think. Yeah, I think I think Fifty Cent ended up just slashing the price a lot because he couldn't afford oh, okay. the the upkeep for the house and everything. It was <laughs> it had a nightclub in it and it had like thirty bathrooms. Wow. It was obnoxious. It was it was crazy. Oh, um, wow. You know what was one of your favorite places to fight? Do you have it? You you fought in some places multiple times. Were there the any spots the garden that you liked? Would be, I mean, we fought on the garden just because of all the nostalgia and everything, but. Um, you know, Foxwood was nice. It was easy to get around. I Foxwood, that was nice. All my family and friends would come. It wasn't that far, so that was cool. Um, AC was fun. I mean, it was really fun. It was forming. It was a big fight. That was fun, too, so. Yeah, Atlantic City at the time, again, another place that has kind of uh, dwindled in terms of importance. But back then, that was another place that, that had some, some big fights. And, you know, could you feel kind of the buzz for a few days in a place where you were getting ready to fight if you knew the headliner was yeah, on Saturday? Absolutely, especially like with Foreman. When you get down there, all the camps have the, you know, it, it's just cool, the, the promotion of the event. You see how big it is and everything, you know. At what point, you know, did did you start to dip your toe into acting? Because it was still while you were fighting, right? Yeah, it was right after the foreman fight. I got a call from a from an agent, this guy John. Um, he was with William Morris, John Rosen. They wanted me. I, I it was so far my back burner. I was, you know, I just if something fell into my lap, I would do it, you know. But I didn't really give it that much credence. My main thing was boxing, you know. So one time I was in New York, and he, there was happened to be a go see, so I'd do that or whatever. But, I didn't take it real serious. I should probably, uh, maybe should have, but I, I, it wasn't really my love, you know. But it was fun. Yeah, I, I can imagine that. You know, it would just be it would be something so different, something that you didn't ever expect yeah. to have the chance to do. That it would just be kind of unique to be in those circumstances and be on the set yeah, and things like that. Really cool. Yeah, I would watch the battle. Then I got a really small part of that. That was cool. With uh, Tony Saragusa, who was uh, I was Johnny Sachs bodyguard, and Tony Saragusa was. Uh, Tony Soprano's bodyguards. That was fun. What was it like to be on that set, you know, and see all the guys from the Sopranos? It was so cool. We, we actually shot on uh, Mulberry Street. So it was cool, you know, outside. It was really cool. I got to meet a lot of the guys. I stayed in contact with Johnny Bentamigla, who's Artie Bucco, and he wound up getting me in the horror movie. It was cool. It was, it was really fun time. 
That's pretty neat. That's pretty neat. I remember reading an article uh, where, you know, it was about the time that that episode came out. It was long-term parking in 2004 from season five. And there's a quote, um, you know, somebody writing about your appearance in it, a boxing writer. And the quote was that you were so excited to, to tell your friends and family that you were part of the show and that you had a speaking line in The Sopranos and things. And I can imagine that, you know, again, being a guy from New York and, and sort of being at least aware of, if not around that kind of a culture, um, it was pretty neat to be part of it. As a, as a sliver it was just a little part of it it was, it was funny my um, my brother I actually got a, it was my first speaker buzz I, I ran home I was so excited I told him I said mom I got a speaker buzz you good my brother yells from the kitchen is it going to be subtitled I was like oh thanks a lot <laughs> you know, I, I, mum, I mumble a bit so he was, was raining on my raining on my parade so you had, you had mentioned that at one point in your career that the decision, part of the decision to move to Houston was to kind of get away from some of that culture that is present in New York. Was that, was that around the boxing that was, community? Yeah, yeah, that was, yeah, that was early on. My dad just didn't want me to be around that. It was, you know, it was not as prevalent as it was earlier, but it was still there, you know, so my dad didn't want me to be uh, in on that part. So it was a good move on his part. Were, were guys from the mob, were they promoters of, of fighters? Is that what it was? Um. Yeah, they they always around it in a way. I mean, they're always around boxing. So, um, you know, all the way back to Blinky Palermo back in the 40s and the 50s. But they were always around boxing. You know? I mean, with Jake LaMotta, you know, he, he had to throw a fight once. Jake had to throw a fight. But, you know, the money was too big when I was fighting to try and uh, do that, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, th that makes a lot of sense because especially as you start to get, you know, into the, the, the 2000s and things when your purses are just going up and up and up, yeah, you got to make yeah. sure that everything around you is, is smart. Um, did, did you have an idea going into that Holyfield fight in 2007 that, that win or lose, that was going to be your last fight? No, no, it wasn't. It, it was, uh, if I would have won, I'd be told I was going to be my last fight. So, so what goes through your head, you know, when you, you, um, you know, you end up losing a decision and you go 10 rounds, but, um, you know, how did you decide on the spot that you were going to say that this is my last fight? It, it was just time. My, my brother, uh, who I love is one of my idols. He, he didn't want to come to the fights anymore. And for all the right reasons, he wanted to see me getting hit, you know? So it, it was time. It was definitely time. So. How did your family and, you know, your wife and kids and things, how did they feel about, you know, watching you, you know, either inflict or, or absorb some damage? I don't know. Well, I'm going through a divorce now, so I think my wife might have been rooting for the other guy. But I, I don't know. It was, it, she never went. I really respect her for that. She never went to the fight. So that was good. It helped me a lot, too, because you don't want to have to worry about, you know, the accommodations and things of such. It's very distracting. How did you uh, make the decision that you wanted to open your own gym, you know, now that you've got that going on in Houston? Yeah, it, w it was just a natural. I mean, you know, a lot of guys were doing it. And, uh, I was in the building. I was in the building industry. And, uh, the, uh, you know, in 2008, the building got hit really bad. The subprime and everything was really a bad time for us. Building, so it was a natural progression. And I promote fights, too. I've, I've been off for a little bit, but I'm going to, after the COVID thing, we're going to get back doing it. I really enjoy doing that, too. What is it like to be a promoter? How do you kind of go about it? It's good. I mean, I have a, a, a girl or a, a guy that takes care of most of the minutiae, but, you know, I, I'm good at being in relations with people. I just, I know a lot of people, so it, it's good for me to get sponsorship that way. But it's very hard to make money in the promotional end of it. There's two ways to do it. One is to try and make money off the promotions, or the other one would be to try and get a fighter and raise him. But, you know, it's so speculative. It's, 
it's crazy. Yeah, I saw I saw a quote from you. I think it was maybe on the gym website that said some of the most rewarding experiences for you, or one of them was, you know, working with a client who was over four hundred pounds and got all the way down yeah. under two hundred. Um, you know, can, can you sort of explain a little bit of what the benefits of of training and boxing are for people that you know oh, don't want to fight? Yeah, it's so it's you know I can uh, I'm gonna sound biased, but it's probably not probably it is the best uh, the best integration of cardiovascular and resistance training because you know you're hitting the bags at 200 pounds, you're moving that weight every time, and it's we you are know, one of the best cardio workouts. I mean, it's it's amazing. And the other thing from a mental standpoint, that's why I train uh, Parkinson patients too. It gets them out of their head. And it really makes it's very cerebral. The you have to hear what the guy said, then you have to pick the spot, and then you have to hit it, you know. So, you know, for an able-bodied person, it's not that hard. But for somebody with Parkinson's, it, it is very hard, but it's really good because it makes them. And then from a mental standpoint, so many of our clients are oil and gas guys, and they say it's the only time during the whole day that they get to re- relax. Yeah, I saw an article about your work with people with Parkinson's. How did that sort of come together, and, and what gave you the idea to, to work well, with people? Well, to be honest, there was a company called Rocksteady Rock Steady Boxing out of uh, Illinois, the can't remember where, but anyway, we went out there because it was getting prevalent around the U.S. We went out there, and we got certified, me and another one of my trainers, so it's fun. We haven't started the classes yet, but I do have a lot of privates that come in and do it, so it's really cool. What what would you say is sort of the the range of of your clientele? I'm sure you have guys that want to fight, oh, and I'm no. sure you have people that are older. And and so, what is the mix I got, like? I have I have rap producers to a uh, lot of doctors, lawyers. I have it's such an eclectic group. I have oil 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 executives. I have a really uh, eclectic group of people. Does that make it fun for you? Yeah, it's so much fun. I'm a people person. I love talking to them and meeting them. It's fun. They're all, all, all great people. You know, one of the last things I wanted to ask you here was as a guy who is such a historian of boxing the way that you are, uh, people a lot of times asked you during your career if the era that, that you fought in of heavyweights, you know, with your with your Tysons and your Lewises and your Holyfields and Foremans and things, if that was the best era and you would often compare it to the seventies. So I'm curious, what do you think right. of what do you think of this era now with the Tyson Furies and Anthony Joshua's and Deontay Wilders? Yeah, it's actually fun because it's so international, you know. So it's cool. I get a kick out of. Uh, I really get a kick out of uh, with Tyson Fury. He's funny. He makes me laugh. He's hard to fight, but it's interesting. It's got a much more international flavor. You have Joshua. He's another guy in the UK, but you got some other guys. It should be interesting. We got some guys in America um, that seem to be making some headway. Deontay Wilder. Uh, it, I think it's an interesting point right now. Yeah, it certainly seems like after a, a lull of about ten or twelve years in the heavyweight division, they're starting to to have some more some more life there. And you know, again, you know, the the heavyweight title is one of those things that you know you go back to the the seventies, sixties, um, you know, even earlier. That was that was uh, the the pinnacle of sport in the United States. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there was nobody to me. There was no heavyweight era anywhere near. You know. Uh, uh, Ali, I mean, had, even the bad guys were great. Bonavina, Henry Cooper, there were so many great heavyweights at that time. You know, um, Bob Foster, was, like, there were so many good guys out there. It was crazy. You know. Scott Ledoux, uh, we, we can go on forever, you know. Would, uh, would you ever have any interest in, in fighting again, the way Evander and, and Tyson and these guys are talking about trying to make I, comebacks? I stay in really good shape. I'm crazy. I work out still, so I would love to do it. I mean, it's just, you know, we're crazy. We're, 
I would still do it in a minute. You know. Do you think it'll happen? Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't know. I think Tyson might get a big fight, you know, but we'll see what happens. I'm going to be sparring Friday with Tommy Morrison's son, uh, Trey Morrison. He's 8-0, so... Uh, that would be fun. That would be fun to see you have another fight, though. I'd yeah, like to okay. see you back out there. You and me both, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lou, thank you so much for, for taking the time, man. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun, and uh, who knows? Maybe we'll even see you in the ring one of these days, my friend. No, no, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, call me if you need anything else to discuss something or anything. Just give me a call. So there you have it, a conversation with Lou Savaris. It was pretty crazy to hear him talk about being in the ring with Mike Tyson or Evander Holyfield and George Foreman, some of these guys whose names are just ubiquitous throughout sports and certainly throughout the boxing world. I uh, I can't imagine looking and staring down at Mike Tyson and, and getting ready to uh, ready to fight. Now, obviously, that, that didn't go Lou's way, and he was knocked out in the first round, but still, just to be in the ring with Mike Tyson is uh, a terrifying prospect, and if you don't back down from it the way that obviously Lou and a number of other boxers didn't, guys who fight, fought Mike Tyson, you've got bigger stones than I do, that's for sure. I would never be able to uh, to be in that kind of a world, and boxers are just fascinating people. They, uh, they're wired differently. They have different lifestyles than, than you and I, and so when you can peek behind that curtain a little bit, even though boxing isn't as popular today as it once was, I still find it to be really intriguing and something that I enjoy hearing about and learning about. If you like today's episode, please feel free to check out all of the others, which are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. If you happen to be listening on an Apple device, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars if you like the show, and maybe a comment if you have anything you'd like to share about the show or any thoughts about what we should do down the road. I really appreciate all the feedback I've gotten so far, and the more ratings and comments we get, the higher up we're placed in the Apple iTunes store, and the more exposure this podcast can get. So until the next episode of this podcast, I hope you have a terrific rest of your day, a terrific rest of your week, and I will talk to you again soon.